What does it mean to put your trust or to believe in Jesus? Oh my goodness. Now some of us have how, some of us have been going to church since we were like two years old, right? You probably this is like your 20th Easter service for some of you guys, right? But today, what we're going to look at as we celebrate Easter, and for those of you who are not familiar with what Easter really means, Easter is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the day that he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And so as we look at this, just being real, when I was younger, when I was in high school, I remember thinking, what is the big deal about resurrection? Like, what's the big deal here. Like, he's God. Of course, he can resurrect. He can get back up. He can go back down. He can die again. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. And to be honest, for a long time, I didn't see what the significance or the meaning of his resurrection really was. It didn't seem that applicable to my life. So today, we're going to take a deeper look at what it means to trust in Jesus and specifically a look at the resurrection. What do we believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You guys ready? All righty then. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you do not have your Bibles today, that's okay. We're going to have it right on the board. <clears throat> and we'll be reading out of the New Living Translation, which I understand is not one that many of us have. I'm going to be quibbling a little bit with the New Living Translation today. I like the New Living because it's very easy to understand, especially when we're talking in a, in a context like this. But there are some things that I think we need a more, you know, specific translation. And when we get there, I'll, I'll let you know, okay? <clears throat> All right. So this is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, and he's going to bring up some questions and he's going to challenge them on something. And these are believers he's speaking to. And he says this, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless and we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Amen. Let's just pause right there. So Paul's asking them a question. And he's like, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, let's be honest. How many of us have taught that there is no resurrection of the dead? Probably none of us. Because it's not really a thing that we talk about these days. Right? It's like you have to understand what life was back, you know, what, what was like back in the first century for you to understand this internal dialogue and debate that they're having about the resurrection. So let's get a little bit nerdy and go back to the first century, can we? Oh, amen. Oh, Pastor Dennis, I love it when we get nerdy. Yes. So let's talk about the afterlife, okay? The afterlife. Um, in historical views, okay? And so there's a couple that I want us to understand. So you got to put yourself back in the first century. This is 2,000 years ago. And for our context, there's basically two groups of people. There's those who are non-Israelites, and these are part of the Roman Empire, and they're highly influenced by Greek culture. All right, any of you guys who studied this whole, you know, era in history, this is the Hellenistic era. And so these Greek thinkers were very influential all throughout the Roman um, Empire. And their understanding formed much of people's beliefs back in those days about what would happen when you die. Okay, there was not one belief back in those days. There were a couple really popular ones. There were three or four that were really popular in that time. So the big one was from a guy named Homer. You guys have probably read some of his stuff in school, right? Like the Iliad. 
blank looks. Holy cow. Alrighty then. All right, starting from scratch. Here we go. Well, this is, this is one that you've probably seen depicted in movies and stuff like that. This is the idea that there is an underworld, right? Like, uh, they called it Hades. And the idea was that souls who died descended into the underworld. And the thing with, with Homer's more classical understanding of the afterlife is there was no coming back, right, from Hades. Once you're there, you're there for good. Hope you like it. Hope you find a nice spot in Hades, but it's kind of dreary. It's not a really happy place. You don't really want to go there, okay? So many people at this time believed in that kind of picture of what happens when you die. The second major one came from a guy the name Plato. Now, Plato is one of the most influential people of, of history, super influential. And Plato had a theory. He believed that the human body was a three-part was a three-part being, right? That there was a physical body, and then there was a soul, and then there was a spirit. And the idea was, in Plato's mind, the soul is like the kind of the good part of you. And that's, that's the part that is always warring with your body. And your body just wants material things. Your body just wants to, to please, you know, like, you know, to feel good and, and feel pleasurable and eat good food. And so your soul is constantly at war with your body. And his understanding was, well, when you die, what's going to happen is your soul is going to finally escape from your body. It's finally going to be free, and it's going to be able to, to be happy and free and good. And so in Plato's understanding, the soul was able to escape from the body and kind of go into this ethereal kind of bliss, right? Like, we're, we're all good. It's, we're, you know, everybody. So the idea here is that if your soul goes into bliss, if you agree with the ideas of Plato, well, you don't want to come back to life. That doesn't make any sense, right? Because you got you you made it, right? You got freed from your physical body. You're you're done. Okay? All right, so that's the 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 Gentile understanding of the afterlife in the first century. Now to contrast that, we had now the Jews, and the Jews had their own history. They had the Old Testament, the Bible, and stuff that God had revealed to them through history about what would happen after they die. And there was no consensus. In fact, there was a huge debate. It was a big debate back in the first century between two groups called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you read the Gospels, you've probably heard a little bit about these two groups of people. The Pharisees, well, let me start with the Sadducees. The Sadducees, these were the, the, the priests. These were the ones who functioned in the temple. They were often part of the priesthood or the aristocracy. Many of the Sadducees were very powerful people, and they were kind of in bed with Rome. So Rome was like the, the ruling empire over Israel, and so the Sadducees would cultivate relationships with the Roman officials, and in a lot of ways, they were like the pragmatists, okay? They were very practical, these people. They were, they were, we would think of them more as, you know, more liberal today, right? They're kind of like the theological liberals, and they're like, you know, there's, you know, there's no resurrection of the dead. You know, your soul, when you die, it's just, it's gone. That's it, okay? It, that's it. It's over, right? And in disagreement with them was this group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees believed, based most especially on a passage in the book of Daniel, because Daniel was a prophet, and he saw that in the end what would happen was the souls of the dead would rise, that they would rise from the dead, some to everlasting reward, and some to everlasting contempt. That's what Daniel saw in chapter 12, if you, if you ever want to read it. So the Pharisees believed that, and the Sadducees didn't, and this was a big deal back in the day. They would argue all the time about what was going on. Now, the reason Paul is writing to these Corinthians is because many of the Sadducees, or who were influenced by Sadducee thinking, became part of the early church. And so the debate was still flowing within the early church. In fact, also, there were people who came from a more Greek background, and they're like, you know, I don't know what to think about all of this, and, you know, I thought that our souls just kind of, you know, go off into bliss, or I thought that, you know, it just kind of is done, or maybe we go to the underworld. And so there was some confusion on this back in Paul's day, and Paul is coming in, and he's saying, no, dum-dum, this is important, right? He's saying this isn't like a minor thing. Like you, it's not like you can, oh yeah, you can believe whatever you want about this. You can, you know, no problem as long as you follow Jesus. No problem. No, Paul's like, hey, if you don't understand what's true about this, your faith is useless. 
that's pretty big, right? That's pretty big. And because Paul's going to make this weird point that I think is hard for us in our context today to understand. He's going to say, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised from the dead. Now, that's a really interesting point because I think for many of us, we think, well, Jesus is God, so he can raise from the dead. What's the problem? Right? He can do whatever he wants to do. Like I said, right? he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can float around, whatever. He's God, right? But in Paul's understanding, he had an entire system of thought of how this all works out. And Jesus rising from the dead was an important and integral part of that entire system, right? What I'm saying is this, that if we understand why the resurrection was important to Paul, we'll get something very important about how resurrection, this understanding is really important to the entire way that God works and the way the kingdom of God is supposed to operate. Am I making sense? Now, here's what I'm also going to say. I bet you didn't know this, but if you've grown up going to church or maybe your parents went to church sometimes, you have probably heard that when you die, you know, if you believe in Jesus or you're really good, that you go to heaven. And if you're bad, then you go to the bad place, hell, right? And that's kind of the popular understanding of most people. I want to say this, that there is truth to that, but that is really not what the Bible emphasizes. And we're going we're gonna to hit that today pretty hard because it's, it matters when we talk about resurrection. Let me put it to you this way. I bet if, our, if your understanding is that, oh, you die and you go to heaven or you die and you go to hell, well, what's, what's resurrection all about? I bet that that doesn't form a very important part of your theology. Because there is no place for resurrection with that kind of understanding. And I'll tell you why. Because that kind of understanding really comes more from Plato than it does from the Bible. When I was talking about that Platonic understanding, I bet some of you think, huh, that sounds, yeah, he was right on there. Right? He was on to something, that Plato guy. <laughs> right? Yeah, the soul releases from the body and goes into bliss. Boy, that sounds like heaven, doesn't it? That sounds a lot like heaven. And guess what? What happened was in the early church, as it became more and more filled with Greek-thinking Romans, they started to reinterpret some of the ways that the early church had understood it. And that's why it actually became more Platonic throughout time. But if we want to go back to what the scriptures talk about and what the scriptures emphasize, I'll tell you what they emphasize. They emphasize that you're going to get a new body. That's weird. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Pause right there. Here's where I need to quibble with the NLT, okay? It really, really should read first fruits, okay? It should. Like if you have almost any other translation of the Bible, it's going to say first fruits right there, okay? NLT says the first of a great harvest. Yes, that's the idea, but the word's really important, first fruits, because it's a biblical word that you have to, you have to understand Paul's referencing something here. He's pulling out something that's a big deal. So just imagine that if that says first fruits, okay? He is the first fruits of all who have died, verse 21, so you see just as death came into the world through a man now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man just as everyone dies because we all belong to adam everyone who belongs to christ will be given new life but there is an order to this resurrection christ was raised as the first of the harvest again first fruits right christ was raised as the first fruits then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Amen. Oh, this is so glorious, God. All right, here's what we're going to do. What we need to do is we need to establish what is the big deal, and to do that, we have to get into biblical patterns. Can we do that? Can I get, continue on the nerdy track for just a little bit more? Amen, Pastor Dennis. I love it when you're nerdy. All right. Two days ago, we celebrated a Christian holiday called Good Friday. Okay, guess what? You ain't going to find no Good Friday in your Bible. It don't exist. They talk about something called Passover, right? Passover is what, you know, we really should call it, but there's a whole history. I won't get into it. But the point is this. Passover is a big, big deal, okay? For those of you who have been part of BTM and you've been with us a couple years, you remember last year and the year before that, I went off on Passover and the, the feasts of the Lord and the spring feast. you remember? Yes, please remember, right? 
There's seven feasts of the year. These are commandments given to the Israelites that they must keep in perpetuity until the end of time. And because time does not end, they're going to be doing it forever and ever and ever. Every year they're going to celebrate these seven feasts. Why? Because they represent such important truths. Okay? The first feast of Passover, how many of you guys saw the Prince of Egypt? You know, deliver us. Except he's got that voice. Deliver. Yeah. Right? What do you have? You have Moses, and Moses is sent to Egypt, and he's leading God's people out. Let my people go. And they, there's all these judgments, right, that come against the people of Egypt, right? The, the sun becomes dark. The river turns to blood. The frogs and the locusts. And the final judgment is the judgment on the firstborn of Egypt. And what God commands Moses to do is he says, go, command all the Israelites to kill a lamb, right? Kill it and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your house. You definitely want to do this, right? Because if you do not do this, then the angel of death who goes around will go, hmm, this person does not believe. And he will go into your house and he will kill the firstborn in the house. Okay, So they did that. They painted their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And then that was the judgment. That was the thing that made Pharaoh go, oh my gosh, get the heck out of here. Okay, we're done with you guys. Go. That was the thing that released Israel, right, to go and to leave Egypt as slaves. All right? Passover, very important holiday. Why? Why did we celebrate it two days ago? Because if you can't see the parallel, you have some spiritual blindness. Okay? The parallel that we celebrate as Christians is this, that Jesus came as the fulfillment of that sign, meaning God set up the whole Passover thing to be a foreshadowing of what would come, that Jesus would be sent as the Lamb of God. If you remember, he's baptized in the River Jordan, and then... Remember, John the Baptist goes, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? Jesus is the Lamb who sacrificed on Calvary on, it just happens to be Passover that day. Did you realize that, that he literally died on Passover? It's one of those amazing coincidences, right? He just died on that specific day. It's amazing, right? He died, and when we believe in him, what happens? We have salvation because our sins are forgiven because they're put on Jesus, right? Yeah, amen. Okay, okay. We understand the part. Hopefully you went to a good Friday service on Friday. Amen. Now, what happened in the, in the historic Passover? What happened was that after that, they sent them out, and then the next day was Sabbath, was Saturday, and then the day after was the Feast of First Fruits, the very first Feast of First Fruits, okay? Now, that's the second of the feasts, and then Pentecost. Hey, guess what? Amazing things happened, and it's just a coincidence. They happened on those exact days again. It's this... Incredible coincidence, right? This crazy coincidence that Jesus died on the Passover. Two days later, on the Feast of First Fruits, he rose from the dead, right? Two and a half years, right? He rose again from the dead, and then what happens? 50 days later, Pentecost. You guys know your history? What happens on the Feast of Pentecost, right? The Spirit gets poured out on the church. It, they all just so happen to fall in those exact days. I know, it's an amazing coincidence. You know, this is a, an amazing coincidence that Jesus fulfilled 61 prophecies. That's that amazing coincidences, right? Like Micah 5 says that he would be born in Bethlehem. Daniel 9 says that he would be born 500 years after the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Guess where that falls? Around 0 AD. Oh, fascinating. What a coincidence. Hosea chapter 11 says that he would come out of Egypt. Zechariah 11, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22, that they would cast lots for his clothing. Isaiah 53, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and sins. Psalm 16, that he would be resurrected from the dead. And Isaiah 42, that he would be a light to the nations, influencing millions of Gentiles to worship the God of Israel. Those are pretty good coincidences. Holy cow, it's just amazing how that just turned out. It's almost like it was prophetic or something. <laughs> right? Think about it. Some random carpenter 
from a backwater, you know, province in the Roman Empire, says, I'm going to be a light to the nations. And he just somehow manages to convince billions of people, right? Oh, Koreans, right? Like, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of miraculous, right? This is the God we serve. These are not coincidences, right? Brothers and sisters, we need our, our spiritual eyes to be opened, right? Because this is what happens at first fruits. Why is it significant that Jesus rose at first fruits, right? Why? Because the first fruit offering, the whole idea of it was this is the beginning of our harvest, God, right? This is the first, the best portion of our initial harvest. And we have faith that this is just the first fruits. We give God our first portion in trust. He blesses the harvest, and then you have a great harvest. Does this make sense how this works? Why is it significant that Jesus rises on first fruits? Because he's the first one to be resurrected. That's the idea. That's why it's a big deal. If you know the story, right, if you know the story in the Bible, what happens? Jesus rises from the dead, and he runs into Mary, and he says, don't touch me, right, because I have to go to the Father first. And what happens? Why does he have to go to the Father on that day? Because he presents himself as the first fruits offering before the Father, right? And then he returns, and then he comes to the disciples, and then they can touch him, right? And then he has Thomas touch his hand and all this kind of stuff. Why? Because he's been presented. He's no longer, he was holy before then, right? He could not be touched because he was the first fruits offering, the fulfillment of it. We making sense? Right? This is the idea. Why is this a big deal? So, next slide. What's the big deal about all this? Right? Why, why is it a big deal? Number one, it reveals the kingdom. Okay, this is, a, this is important. Look, we talk all the time. If you ever come to church, at least here, we talk all the time about the kingdom of God. In fact, the entire Bible is about the kingdom of God. I, kn I know that's confusing because a lot of times it's like, what's it about? Oh, it's about, you know, being forgiven of your sins and, you know, Israel. Like there's so much stuff in the Bible, right? But the central theme that is really the heart of the whole thing is this idea of kingdom. And can I tell you, most Christians have no idea what the heck the kingdom of God is. That's a problem. It's a problem when the main point of the book is the kingdom, and you ask every Christian, what's the point? And you're like, I don't know. Believe in Jesus and go to heaven? Eh, wrong. That's part of it. It's just not the main thing. The main thing is the kingdom. But I'll say this, because we've misunderstood this aspect, the kingdom becomes so mysterious. You see, a lot of people want Jesus to be the new Plato. They want him to be like the grand wise philosopher who's got all of these tips for how you should live, right? And you go, hey, come and listen to how Jesus tells you you should live. And you're like, oh, oh, that's a pretty good lesson. Oh, I learned something pretty good. And we, we like to think of Jesus like he's Plato. And, and, and Plato is going to tell us that, oh, don't worry, if you're good or if you go to church or if you say a prayer maybe, well, then you, one day, your spirit is going to... And it's just going to go into eternal bliss. And you're going to be so happy and wonderful forever. What are you going to be doing forever? You know, just chilling on a cloud <laughs> with a harp, singing a song, right? This is the popular understanding. It makes no sense. It makes no sense, okay? No, Jesus resurrected with an immortal physical body. Because he intends to rule an immortal physical kingdom. What's my point? When we think of Jesus, we think he's like, you know, right now, where is Jesus? He's like a heavenly ghost sitting on the right hand of the Father. What does he do? He just sits there all day long, every day, right? Sometimes he prays. Right? This is our understanding of Jesus. Can I say no? What does it mean that he's alive? Like, this is so cool. The youth group, they printed these pins. Right? It says the tomb is still empty. He's alive. What does that mean? Can I, can I tell you? It means that he could be in this room today. That's right. 
it means that he actually meets people and talks with them today. Like, what are you talking about, Pastor Dennis? Now you're getting into weird, crazy Pastor Dennis zone. <laughs> Excuse me, we see this in the Bible, right? After he ascended, didn't he appear to somebody, a couple people, like Paul? Didn't he appear to him on the road to, Dis- to Damascus? Yes. Can I tell you, I have a friend who had Jesus come into her room and give her a hug, legit, radically transformed and saved her life. She was about to kill herself. There are hundreds and thousands of testimonies, right, of Muslims having Jesus come into the room with them and getting saved, right? There are testimonies of apostles and prophets all throughout the world who have had a bodily experience where they've seen the resurrected bodily Jesus come and talk with them. Wait, 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 wait. You're getting really weird, Pastor Dennis. No, I'm getting biblical. You're the one who's weird. You're the one who's weird. You're the one who wants Jesus to be some distant philosopher who's up there handing out some good advice. And if you feel like listening to it, you can. And if you don't want to, whatever, dude. Live your life, bro. No, the nature of the kingdom is this. Jesus is not out to make friends and influence people. That's not his modus operandi. That's not what he's trying to do in life, right? He's not out to meet your needs. No. He's out for your fealty. He's here for your obedience. He is the firstborn of the new mankind. This is what the whole thing's about. This is what the Bible is all about. It's the story of how God was creating a new humanity to populate an eternal kingdom. This is a humanity that is free of the sinful nature. That's right. All the evil tendencies that you have, the stuff you don't want to look at, but you kind of do want to look at, right? The jealousy that comes unbidden to our hearts, all of that stuff cannot exist in the next age. Why? Because this is the world it was always intended to be. This is the thing that God planned from the beginning, right? The point of the Bible is that the world we're living in is a broken and fallen one. And God is not out to rescue a handful of people to go and sit on harps forever. No, it's about a king coming to earth and establishing a kingdom that endures forever. That's the Bible. That's what everything is about in the Bible. It reveals the nature of the kingdom. Why? Because you need a body for what we're going to be doing in the age to come. You need an immortal body that cannot be given into decay, that cannot get sick, that cannot break down on you. Why? Because you have an eternal calling on your life, right? That's why I always say, Dennis, what am I called to do? Your calling is eternal. Am I called to be a doctor? No. Was Jesus called to be a carpenter? That may be like that much of his calling, right? But no, his calling is king, right? That's what he's going to be forever. That's the idea. So, brothers and sisters, when you're talking about the calling of your life, and I just feel like God wants me to be happy, and I feel called to go to Disneyland every day, right? I'm like, that is such a small understanding, okay? Maybe. Maybe God's saying go to Disneyland. Okay, whatever. But that's not what your calling is about, church, right? No, our calling it can only be realized in a glorified kingdom. Does this make sense? Why? That's why in this age we're called to walk by faith because in the next age we will be glorified if Jesus is not lying. Okay? Now if he's lying, as Paul said, then we are the greatest of all fools. Right? We are the biggest dum-dums ever. Right? If he's lying, right, then we're, 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 we are holy cow. Right? If he's lying, then we're just big dum-dums. Okay? I'll just leave it at that. Okay? But the question is, what if he's not lying, right? If, let me, I always say this. Like, if, if, 
the Bible is wrong, if God is wrong, if Jesus is wrong, then what happens is I just live a life like I could have been rich, but instead I just chose to be poor and generous and love people and forgive them and just enjoy my wife and family and God. It's actually pretty awesome, right? That's if I'm wrong, right, then I just, and then I die, just like everybody else, right? But if I'm right, right, if it's not just a coincidence, right, if it's not just this great coincidence, all these 61 prophecies fulfilled, it's just coincidence that the gospel of the kingdom is gone around the earth just like was prophesied thousands of years ago by a random carpenter. If it's not a coincidence, then this is the real thing. Then all the desires for meaning in our hearts and in our lives, they actually are saying something true, right? If it's not a coincidence, then all of our sense of injustice, like that's not right that people are stealing. That's not right that they're oppressing others. That's not right that they're betraying. Then that actually matters that's actually a true feeling of our hearts guess what if we're wrong then it doesn't matter then you know who wins the person who can steal the most right they win in this life if there is no eternal judge or king who's coming to set right all wrongs right i think that this is just the beginning that we're they're we're halfway into a great story. We're not even halfway. We're right at the prologue. We're still in the introductory phase of the greatest story ever. Right? Number two, why is the resurrection important? Because it is the signpost of history. This is something we have to understand. How does God speak? Look, we're 21st century Americans. We always want God to be like us. Right? I just want God to do what I want him to do. Like, why don't you do what I want you to do? Can I tell you that God is the way he is, and he doesn't feel obligated to be like we want him to be? So let me tell you, let me break it to you. He speaks to people through mis mysterious signs. There's lots of Bible verses, right? He speaks to people through mysterious signs. Why does he do this, though? Right? Why does he do this? First of all, let's look at this particular sign, because this is the biggest one ever. Right? The resurrection of Jesus is the hinge of human history. Everything revolves around Jesus' resurrection. The spread of Christianity is the greatest changing force for good in the history of, hu of humanity. Right? It's the greatest thing that ever happened. All the peace and the technology and the, the stability in our world today is because of Christianity. Okay? It's because, guess what? You can have a store where people don't just try and rob you blind all the time. Why? Because of Christianity. Because people have a morality in their hearts from a history, a tradition, a legacy of Christianity in our nation. Am I making sense? Right? Christianity is the greatest force for good. And not only that, our calendar revolves around the person of Jesus. Right? Our calendar, the histories and the developments of nations all revolve around the influence of Christianity in them for the most part. Nothing else can account for the dynamic growth of the early church unless Jesus actually rose from the dead. What's my point? My point is this. You ain't going to convince a bunch of people that Jesus rose from the dead if they didn't actually see it. History tells us that they were tortured. They were martyred. They were killed. They were thrown into lion's dens. They were boiled in burning oil, right, in boiling oil. They were crucified upside down. They were set on fire. What kind of idiot does that if they know they're lying? That is some kind of moron, right? Don't worry, we're going to go to heaven, you know, right? You know, I'm lying about this whole thing. It doesn't make any sense. These people, they said that they witnessed the risen Jesus. That was Paul's testimony as an apostle. No, I saw him, right? I saw him with my own eyes. I witnessed that he is indeed alive, that he's real. And it was on the testimony of these men that inspired and radically transformed the early Christians in the church. And their behavior was so countercultural. They forgave. They were generous. They took care of the poor. 
They were so different from the culture around them that they inspired thousands and then millions to put their faith in the same person of Jesus. Nothing can account for the early growth of the church except that he really did rise again. And I'll, I'll take it one farther. Nothing can account for the growth of the church today except the reality of who God is. It's not possible. There is no, nothing like the spread of Christianity. The most popular one that I hear is, well, what about Islam? Islam is completely different, okay? Muhammad was a conqueror. Islam has always spread through threat and violence. Christianity has never spread through threat and violence. When we resorted to that in past times and bad times, right, the church has gone, has, has decreased, has been worse off. It's through the blood of martyrs. It's through Christians going and loving people even when it costs them their lives. This is what has inspired generations of people all around the world to put their trust and their belief in Jesus. Do you know that 10% of China is now Christian? 10%? There's more, there's more Christians in China than there are in America. The gospel is going like crazy all throughout the world. And you're like, oh, dude, they're just because they're, they're, they're dummies. These are all a bunch of dummies believing in made-up superstition. Well, I'm like, okay, well, you give it a shot. Okay, see if you can come up with a good superstition that will spread like that throughout the world. Newsflash, you can't. All of that is, is garbage. The reality is nothing else can account for the growth of the church. Okay, so here's the reality. God speaks to us in signs. Here is what I'm saying. The, the resurrection of Jesus is a great sign from heaven. And who's it for? It's for you. That's right. He came to the world 2,000 years ago to plant a sign and says, hey, look here. You, look here. Guess what? God wants you to know him. And Jesus, the story of Jesus, his coming, his incarnation, his becoming a man, his dying on the cross, but most importantly, his resurrection from the dead are the signs that are given to the world to investigate whether this is real. Acts 17. Paul says this in Athens. He says, from one man, he, speaking of God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. What's the idea here? God expects you to be intrigued by the story of Jesus and to reach out for him. This is important because a lot of people have this mentality. Well, if God's real, then he should just come and tell me himself. But he did. But he did. So no one is without excuse. Why? Because this is a test. We want God to make it. Look, in our, in our consumer culture, right, McDonald's, I tell them every time, no pickles in my McDouble, please. You know what happens when they put pickles in there? It happens like all the time, Right? <laughs> I just take them out because I'm a decent person, okay? But you know a lot of people, they go back, right? How dare you put pickles on my McDouble, right? We're so used to a culture that everything is tailor-made for us. We become the consumers. It's my way, right? It's the way I want it to be. And the problem is God is not like that. You know what, you know what the, the thing with God is? He's the one testing you. Maybe some of you came today, oh, I'm going to try this whole Jesus thing out, see what it's all about. And you're like, I'm going to see what Jesus is saying here. Newsflash. It's God who's testing you today. He's the one who's looking, right, to see who's going to be part of his kingdom. I don't say, I don't say this casually. In Romans 2.6, this is, this is exactly what Paul says. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Hear me, church. If you're here today, I want to say this to you. God is testing you in this life. He is looking for a people who want him. He purposefully does not make it too easy. 
I know that's hard for us to hear because we're like, God, if you really do love us, why won't you just show up, right? Why don't you just pop up, right? But this is what he says. He's looking for those who in persistence, by persistence and doing good, seek after glory, honor, and immortality. That sounds really weird because we tend to think sometimes like it's like those evil villains in those movies, right? They're the ones always looking for immortality, right? The fountain of youth, I'm going to kill everybody to get it, right? This is a caricature, but the reality is that God's looking for those who want immortality. We don't think about this. We think a lot of times, well, you know, God's just out there and, you know, maybe he loves me, maybe he doesn't. No, he sent Jesus because he does love you, but he's looking for those who want immortality. What's the point? Those who are self-seeking. Welcome to America, 21st century. This is, this is our culture. How can we serve you? How can the church help you? How can God help you? I want to tell you this. All of that will make it so hard for you to find God. Because if you want to know him, you have to come to him on his terms. You have to confess that your life has been about yourself. How do I know that it's been about yourself, by the way? Because we don't live in a pagan society anymore. Right? I know you're not... Worshiping Zeus, right, or Athena, in America, the alternative to Jesus, for the most part, is me. I live my life however I want to, right? God wants me to go to that junk school. Forget it. I'm going to Harvard. Forget it. I'm, going, I'm doing whatever I want to do. We have no concept in America of what it means to serve and know Jesus as king. Brothers and sisters, let me say this again. It has been burdened on my heart over and over for the past several months. There's, there's so many people who think that they know Jesus because they're familiar with his words. Because they've heard what he says. Even because they've tried to follow him in their lives. Hear me, that's a big one, right? But my question today is, who is in control of your life? Who, how have you planned your life? If your life is all filled with things that you want, if you're planning for yourself, who's the one on the, on the seat and the throne of your life? You might go, but God, I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I don't care. I don't think Jesus cares. Hear me. This is where we get it up. Why is resurrection important? Because Jesus is not a philosopher come to give you good advice. He's a king who's come for your obedience. Okay? In that, in that passage that we looked at in Acts 17, Paul finishes it up here in verse 30. He says this, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And it says, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. Brothers and sisters, this is the same message that we're preaching today. And as soon as we start saying, look, if I go, hey, believe in Jesus, a lot of people go, yeah, Jesus is cool. I like him. He's got a lot of good things to say. But as soon as we start getting into him being Lord of our lives and directing our steps and us dying to ourselves, what's the whole point of baptism? The point of baptism is we die to our old life and we say, now I'm living for God's glory. Can I just be honest that most people who sit in churches have never embraced that mentality. They've never made Jesus king of their lives. And I say this with Holy fear in my heart. Hear me. It is not enough to believe in Jesus. The scriptures make this clear. Even the demons believe in Jesus. Believe it. That's not what the scripture means by believe in him. It means to give him your allegiance and your loyalty. To make him king. To recognize who he is. Just like in the sketch we saw. Some, some of us are like, oh yeah, I trust you this much, Jesus. Yeah, because if you didn't catch me, I would just get a little bump on my head. I'd be cool. But when Jesus is like, no, I want you to do something that's risky. 
I want you to do something that would really cost you in your life. That's the place where he's asking, am I really your king? Is that how you know me? Am I your king or am I the one that you take advice from occasionally? And I lovingly say this because this is, Paul says this to him, he says, we are Christ's ambassadors and we're pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to him. Come and know him in a real way, right? The church is so filled with so much religiousness and so much religious service, but God never shows up in Christians' lives because they've never made him king. Hear me, if you want a real relationship with Jesus, he has to be king. And it can't just be a verbal affirmation. It has to be tested in obedience. That's what it means. That's what the whole thing's about. Why? Because on the day he returns, he will reward those who have put their trust and their faith in him. That's the idea, that the king will return. He will establish his kingdom, and it will be far greater than any of us can imagine. This is the story of the Bible, and it is a question of trust. Worship team, come on up. I was burdened last night by this question. The message that every American knows today is that Jesus loves them. Everyone knows it because every Christian says it, right? It's true. He does. But a lot of times I think we miscommunicate God when we tell people that Jesus loves them because what they hear is that Jesus accepts me just as I am. And I need to make this crystal clear today. Jesus does not accept us just as we are. He accepts us when we come to him as repentant sinners. When we recognize, God, I'm broken. I'm not fit to be the ruler of my life, to be Lord of my life. I don't know how to do it. I want you to be master of my heart. I want you to be the one who guides and leads me in my life. I want a real relationship with you. That's the basis on which we become acceptable before God. As we come in, into worship today, I want to give an opportunity to respond. If we could bow our heads. I want to lovingly challenge you. Today, the eyes of God, he's the one testing us. It's not because he's hoping we fail. He's hoping that we pass. He's hoping that there are those who are longing for immortality. Immortality. There are those who are longing to believe the promises that he has given, that he is going to fix every wrong, that he's going to establish the perfect world that all of us long for in our hearts, that he's going to do it. He's looking for those who will believe him and trust him to put their trust in him and say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. And for many of you, you may have been going to church for many years. You may have come to church many times in your life. But you know that you've never made him king of your life. You've tried to follow him. Maybe you've even, you've even prayed some prayers. But you've never surrendered your life and said, God, I'm giving the whole thing over to you. Today you have an opportunity to say, Jesus, I want to come to you on your terms. I'm the broken one. I'm the sinful one. I need forgiveness of my sins. And I know that it's only found in you. Today, if you want to do that, I want you to raise your hand right now. We want to pray for you that you would have power. Because this is the other thing about the kingdom. You can't do it on your own. The thing is, God actually has to show up in your life. He actually has to turn your good intentions into real power to follow him and to live by his grace. He wants to set you free 
from bondages in your life, things that you may have struggled with all your life, hear me. The only one who can help you is the living God. If that's you right now, I want you to raise your hand. decision, Jesus, I don't trust myself putting all my trust in you. Amen. And this is his promise. No one who puts their trust in me will ever be put to shame. Now if that's you, if you raise your hand. I want to ask you to take another step of faith and to be bold. I want you to come up to the front because we, we need to lay hands on you. We need to pray for you. And you have to testify before men. This is a requirement. You have to testify before men that you've decided to follow Jesus and make him Lord of your life. Okay. So if that's you, if you raise your hand, I already saw you. So so maybe walk over. And come, on up. come on up to the front. Come on. Come on, let's celebrate. Right now, leaders, if we could come up and lay hands on these brothers and their sisters. Because this is, we need power. They need power. It's not enough to make a decision. That's the essential part. But now we need God to come and fill us with power to live for him and to be completely free. So right now, we're going to lay hands on you guys. And if you guys could come stretch your hands. And look. If you said, man, I know I should have gone up. I'm just afraid all the time. Then come up now, okay? Ain't nobody stopping you. There's an opportunity today to say, Jesus, I want to give you my life. I'm making the decision to make you king, not just on the side, not just a wise advisor, not just somebody I listen to occasionally, but somebody who I've died to my old life for so that I could live for you now. All right, let's stretch out our hands. Let's pray for them right now.